This is Arthur Schwartz. The podcast is Pursuing Justice, which, as I tell everyone every week, is my substitute for my weekly radio show on WBAI, which is called Advocating for Justice, which I hope will be back after the Democratic primary, which I hope to be victorious in. And I am interviewing uh, another candidate, not for city council this week, but for district attorney, Tahani Abushi. Good morning. Good morning, Arthur. How are you doing? Okay. So, Tahani, uh, we have we had a fascinating conversation before the show. Um, and for, well, first, tell people what, what are you running for and why are you running? Sure. Uh, I'm a civil rights attorney and I am running for Manhattan District Attorney. Uh, and for me, I've pretty much dedicated my entire career to balancing the scales of justice, fighting against racism, discrimination, police violence, representing victims of sexual assaults, uh, and I change abusive policies and practices that have threatened our rights. So I think it's important that we have transparency and accountability in our government, and that's the fight I'm going to take to the Manhattan DA's office. You are, you're a, you're a civil rights lawyer. You're a, and you're a civil, civil rights lawyer. Not just that because you're, that doesn't mean you're, just because you're nice. Um, <laughs> but you, you basically have, you principally worked for, you've principally worked throughout your career doing civil litigation. Am I correct? That's correct. And so we have a lot in common, but you're running for a position that basically will have you in charge of prosecuting crimes and in the criminal court side of the world. Why, why have you decided to do that instead of continuing to work on the, you know, as a civil, as a civil, civil rights lawyer? I think that's a, a great question. Um, for me, criminal justice reform uh, in the criminal justice system is not a job. Uh, I don't see it as uh, a stepping stone in my career, so to speak. For me, it's personal because when I was a kid, my father was sentenced to 22 years in prison. And overnight, my mother became a single parent to 10 children. And so I seen and lived through the damage and destruction and the destabilization that the system can cause. And so maybe a majority of people will think a prosecutor just makes this decision to prosecute who to charge, what to charge, what punishment or if any to recommend, and then life goes on. But for people on the receiving end of that decision, their families, their communities, it means something completely different. And uh, my parents' circumstances inspired me to become an attorney. And this went down in Brooklyn. And for me, I wanted to become a lawyer and fight for families like mine and really understand the intricacies of our system. And so I, I started doing criminal defense work, immigration work, family law work, um, because these were our kitchen table conversations. The communities I come from, these were the things that we were worried about and that we were experiencing. But I realized that I was still working within a system whose rules I didn't agree with and that I didn't think was operating uh, in the best interest of the people. And so I switched into civil rights work so I can actually have and, and achieve accountability, uh, especially when it came to police violence, malicious prosecution and uh, violations of our rights. And so for me, uh, I've been able to change policies within the NYPD, within the fire department, identify abusive practices within the Department of Education and change them. Uh, and for me, uh, I felt like that is the structural transformational change that our systems really need uh, and why it's important to, to make sure that we are bringing those changes to the Manhattan DA's office. So I, I want to, I know you've probably gone through this a million times. It's one of the wonderful things about running for office. You get to tell the same story 8,000 times. Um, <laughs> You're laughing, but it's true. Tell the story about your childhood. What what happened to your father? You know, we had a, a pretty great childhood. Uh, we didn't have it all, but we had enough. I am the daughter of Palestinian immigrants. We're all born and raised in um, Sunset Park, Brooklyn. And my parents had a small grocery store where we all worked on the weekends. We stocked shelves, always donated food to the church across the street, the women's shelter around the corner. Everybody's kid worked in the store, you know, made, made some money to buy sneakers and snacks and things of that sort. And it was a heavy immigrant community and first-generation American community. Chinese, Korean, Ecuador, uh, Ecuadorian, Mexican, Irish, Italian. So 
we were all in that community of bridging the gap between both cultures, putting food on the table and, and experiencing people's cultures. And then when my father was incarcerated, it really sent a chill through the community. We were a staple in that community, very well known. And so that really terrified a lot of people. And on our end, um, how, had, how old were you? About 14. And my youngest sibling was six at the time. So what, what was it? What was it like to have a parent arrested when you're 14 years old and, and incarcerated? You know, it's interesting because uh, a piece of you wants to be scared and understand what is going on here. Uh, and then the larger piece of me was like, okay, time to get ready for whatever's coming and figure out how we're going to keep our family together. I had a lot of questions, you know, what does this mean? Do I, can I go back to school? Are we keeping our home? Can I have my friends? Uh, who am I now? How are people looking at us? And then you have to remember that this is your family, right? And so you want to stand by your family and try to keep the family together. So for us, it was trying to be strong while trying to also reconcile all the uncertainty inside. A lot of times people talk about criminal justice and da da da, but they don't really get the human side, right? Sometimes it's right. just a bunch of statistics. Sometimes it's a bunch of like, this is a racist system. Uh, this is a unfair system, whatever it is, but then you experience it and I've experienced it. So that's part of what, you know, I, we connected about when we talk, it's very different, right? All of a sudden you, you watch how the system works and it affects, like, for example, did your friends shun you? Were you afraid to be friends? Did people support you? Did family friends shun your family? Did that happen? I think we were definitely outcasted. People were afraid, like whatever got them is going to get to us. And uh, so don't be associated. And we actually had to move out of our neighborhood, out of our schools, out of our childhood home. We had to completely uproot. And you're right. The system, you know, that's why I always talk about the decision a prosecutor makes and its impact on people. And you're right. You use these big words, um, racist. Uh, systemically racist, uh, disproportionately impacting communities of color. But what does that actually look like and the how part? And that's what I seek to do in not only all of my work as a civil rights lawyer, but in even running for Manhattan district attorney. And you know, Arthur, there was a moment in the courtroom in Brooklyn where uh, my mother was also on trial with my father. They had charged her to force my father to take a plea. And there was a moment in the courtroom where I thought the judge finally asked the question on my mind. He asked the prosecutor, what are you going to do with all these kids? Pointing to my nine siblings and I in his courtroom. And without hesitating, she said, they're not my problem. And she just kept it moving and continued with the proceedings. And, and for me, that is the moment I realized, yeah, the system doesn't see us as human beings. Uh, it was perfectly acceptable to throw 10 kids to the gutter, to use us as leverage, to force pleas. And there was no accountability for what would happen after that. Were your parents uh, pre-trial incarcerated or, or were they, uh, they, they tried to have them both under house arrest, but um, they instead placed my father under house arrest because my mother, like, someone had to take care of the 10 kids. We had to have some kind of normalcy, going to school, groceries. This was back in, I think, 1999 to 2000. So they allowed her to, to not be under monitoring so that she can take care of the kids. But your father had, had to stay in the house? Yes, for a year before so his trial it, and during his trial. So did the family move during when this was all going on or was it afterwards? Afterwards, or maybe right, maybe right in the middle or the beginning of the trial. So what happened to the store? We closed it down, uh, essentially. Um, I think other people took it over. We, we couldn't handle it. Going to trial every day, dealing with lawyers, commuting to Brooklyn, figuring all of it out. We were all separated in different schools as well. So I think for my mother, it was a lot to try and manage. And how long did, before your father went to prison, how long was the whole ordeal? I think the, the trial might have been three to four months. After his arrest? Yeah, from, well, from his arrest, it might have been a year. And then the trial was a few months and then his sentencing. So maybe a year and a half. So for a year and a half, you had this family, your family, living with this charge of father under arrest, a mother under arrest, hanging over your heads. Yes. It must have been horrible. 
It must have been just just excruciating for for you. You know, I did. I went through it as a parent, so you you went through it as a child. Just just excruciating how long the the whole process takes. And was there any did, did the the system? I'm going to the system provide any support for your family at all? No. the The attitude was we deserved it. The attitude was that whatever was going on was our problem and that we just had to deal with it. That's why for us, we quickly went into survival mode. I mean, we had no safety net. Both of my parents, their families, my mom has family in Detroit and my dad has basically been the responsible one. His father died when he was very young. So he's been taking care of his mother and sisters for since he was 13. So it was just us. And in that moment, it's it's a very sobering moment to realize, you know, you have your community, you have your your daily routines, your school, your work, where you go buy your, your bagel in the morning. And then all of that is completely gone. You're starting from scratch, but you have to start from scratch in a quieter way because you have the stigma attached to it. So you're walking on eggshells. And I think for us, for a long time, we were walking on eggshells. And, and how what was you were, you said you were 14 when it all started? Yeah. And how, what were the ages of your other siblings? Well, right now, um, I think the eldest was in college. She was at uh, Barnard and um, huh. yeah, she was at Barnard and my other older siblings were at City College in Fordham. So they were just entering those stages, finishing high school, entering freshman year and sophomore year of college. And then the rest of us, you know, there's enough to be in every grade. So we had uh, some in college, some in high school, junior high school and elementary school. Wow. The ones that were in university, did they did they also have to switch schools or they were able to, to get through? They were able to get through. You know, we all grew up really fast in that year, learning how to commute at a young age, you know, taking the bus, taking the trains, figuring your way out. We all knew that we had to get ourselves together. Otherwise, you know, the potential of becoming that statistic was very real. And then you said at some point they leveraged your mother against your father to make a deal. What, how, did that, how did that play out? Well, my mother was acquitted of all charges. The impetus was, you know, take your chances at trial. But the, the risk here is not just jail. It's who raises the children, what happens to the children. And so the fact that she was acquitted was a pretty big deal. So she went to trial. She was on trial, yes. So they tried to leverage her, but they didn't. But she wouldn't do it. No, I mean it's um, a big it's a big deal. You know, you you know, even the deal on the table for my father before he took it to trial, I think, was around seven years. But because he took it to trial, and uh, the prosecutor had asked for forty six years. And your father went to trial, or he eventually. No, he went to trial. Yeah, he went to trial and he was convicted of conspiracy charges, none of the substantive charges. Uh, And so just based on the conspiracy charges, which just might be a little lawyery, but it carries the same weight and penalties as the substantive charges. So as opposed to proving what was actually done, it's essentially proving a, a hypothetical that it could have been done. Upon that, the prosecutor wanted 46 years. And was this, this, these were state charges or federal charges? Federal charges. Right. So he went to a federal prison and then you had to visit. It's one of the one of the another part that people don't get and that I I learned a lot about visiting a a relative in prison is how many people are visiting the prisons and how hard they make it. There are limited numbers of hours. It's only one day a week you're allowed to go. You have to travel long distances to get there. Uh, You have to leave after X amount of time. I don't know, you know, every prison has a little different rule. You know, 3 p.m. you're out, or you have two hours, or uh, you have to sit in a room with 100 other people, you know, and you have to go through body searches and metal detectors and pat-downs, and you can't bring a watch, and you can't bring a pen, and you can't bring a pad, and you can't bring anything. That's, that's the experience I had, right? Nothing. You basically can bring your brain, right? You can't bring a phone. It was that was the experience you went through. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, they had moved my father. I mean, he was in 
Brooklyn, Jersey, Pennsylvania. And then the end of his time, he was eight hours into Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio. Not only that, but we had to visit him in shifts because it was limited, the, um, the number of adults and children. And so you do that eight hour drive into Ohio. You try to get there before the count. It takes time to process. And then you got to switch shifts and you got to do it within a couple of hours. And then there's the drive home. So a lot of it, there's a lot of logistics that go into it, not to mention the expensive, but disgusting food. And I know a lot of people will talk about the conditions and say, well, that's why you don't do things wrong or it's prison. It's not supposed to be a country club, but there are human beings in there. And if we're going to be the moral compass of the world, then how we treat communities like our incarcerated communities is also important. And it's invasive, right? The whole process is invasive. You're being watched. You're trying, at least for me, to get your parents' attention, but it's distracting environment. So I think the, the whole process of just visiting somebody is never, yeah, you want to think, oh, this is exciting. I'm going to go see my sibling, my child, my parent. But you think about how daunting everything else around it, everything else is around that whole process. And it's discouraging. It's, it's disheartening. And sometimes it's frustrating, especially when you do have to be searched and you go through these random testing and you, you are otherized because you're in that circumstance and it's allowed. It's, it's acceptable, let's say. So there's no, so the system doesn't really make any real accommodation for preserving a family in that, in that situation. No, not at all. I mean, there, there were times where we did that eight hour drive or six hour drive when he was in Pennsylvania and we would show up with the wrong color on. And either we circle around looking for a gas station or a Walmart or something so that we can change our clothes, literally eating the minutes away from our visit. And there was no problem with that. And, and you wouldn't know what those colors are. And you wouldn't know if shorts were allowed or not, or uh, having your hair a certain way, you would just be rejected. And so for me, we were, we were always frustrated at just the disrespect and disregard of the effort it takes to keep the family together when you have an incarcerated loved one and they're very far away. Is that part of the experience that got you to become a lawyer? Yes, I think for me, uh, seeing how my parents were demonized during the trial, how the prosecutors completely disregarded that this was a family, that they had 10 children, that we were part of a larger community. There was just an acceptance that the railroading was allowed because this is a criminal trial, right? This is a criminal circumstance. And so the violations of the rights, the disregarding of the stability of the family, the stability of the community, it just didn't sit right with me. And honestly, when the prosecutor was like, they're not my problem, that's really when the system became my problem. Because the, the, the stage set before then, right, is that we leave our home, we leave our school, we leave our community, my father's under house arrest, Everything is walking on eggshells. We have to be careful where we're going, what we're saying, who we're speaking to. We're outcasted from the community. There's heavy police presence, heavy court presence. Your life is surrounded by this, this uh, circumstance, right? This one issue, everything is revolving around it, right? Forget about visiting friends, forget about visiting family, forget about trying to have a new normal. You have this giant hole in your, in your life right now that everything revolves around. And it's extremely stressful, but you can't even talk about it because when you talk about it, it's going to bring more negativity uh, and more obstacles your way. And then it culminates into the courts, into the trial, and you finally get to hear from the people who are trying your parents. And the response is, you're not my problem. I don't care what happens to you. I think the problem there is that we've become more comfortable with excessive punishment, that we're willing to fall on that sword and say, hey, something, somebody's accused of doing something, and, and the only tool I have uh, is a hammer, so everything's going to be a nail. We're more comfortable with those excessive circumstances versus the more difficult thing to do, which is to identify the root causes, address the instabilities, and actually respond in a way that's going to focus on rehabilitation and preventing recidivism. Uh, we see that just all the time. And there's a comfort and an acceptance with that excessive punishment. It makes more sense or it's something we can actually digest to say, oh, we heard someone did X and they got X amount of time or X amount of punishment. Well, that makes sense because for us, we conflate accountability with incarceration. 
you know, it's interesting because we used to call it the penal system and now it's called corrections, right? But in fact, penal was related to the word penalty. Corrections is, and even though we call it the Department of Corrections and the Federal Department of Corrections, the State Department of Corrections, it's really still a penal system. There was not enough of a focus on corrections. So, so you, you went to law school and did you, you became a criminal defense lawyer? Yes, when I first started, I, I opened my own practice. And that's basically it. My two of my siblings also became attorneys, and those are my partners and my sister-in-law included. So we have a, a small family practice. And and you started first doing criminal work. Right. Criminal work, immigration work, things that were um, heavy issues in, in the communities that I was in and I was serving. And did you wind up doing many trials as a criminal defense lawyer? Uh, I did a handful of trials. You know, most cases end in a plea. Uh, trial is is just, there's a lot of risk in trial. And we have to understand that the system, my father being a prime example, um, you know, no matter how great of an attorney you are, right, that the risk for trial doesn't fall onto your shoulders. Um, it's a family that's going to be involved in it. And so that's a very difficult decision to make. But um even as a civil rights lawyer, I've done plenty of trials in state and federal court, still is the same risk, but you're not talking about someone's freedom uh, on the other line. You know, it's interesting. I, so I've been in employment, mostly in, in employment law, although I seem to spend half my time these days doing crazy cases like suing to reinstate the presidential primary or to stop petitioning, in-person petitioning or to defend ranked choice voting or things like that. But um, but I am principally an employment lawyer and a union lawyer. And I often said, and I'm, I may still believe this, one of my first trials, I represented a guy who was charged with assaulting his supervisor at work. He was in a union shop. It was Drake's, I think it was Drake's in, they had a, they had a, um, a plant in Long Island City. I'm not sure it's there anymore. He got sick. He got um he got sick from the excessive amount of flour in the air because the 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 air clear clean cleaning systems were not working properly. So he filed a workers' compensation claim. And this guy was interesting because he here I'm like 27, 28 years old. He, you know, when I first met him, he told me that he had actually fought in Bolivia with Che Guevara, right? And and then he had emigrated with his family to the United States and became a factory worker. But he still had these like fervent, he was really just just fervent political guy. So he was, he filed his workers' comp claim and his supervisor went to court and said it wasn't true. There was no flower in the air. And he got his workers' comp claim, but he started going around the plant talking about how his supervisor was a liar. And he got suspended from work for calling his supervisor a liar. And he was told, we'll make a day-to-day -day decision about whether you're going to come back to work. So every day he'd have to appear at work and his supervisor would say, would say, no, you're not working today, go home. And he had a family already, right? And so one day it was like about five in the morning, he was walking down the street and he saw a supervisor across the street and his supervisor yelled out, ha, you think you're going to work today? And he ran across the street and slugged the supervisor and knocked him out. I'm, I'm betraying attorney-client privileges 40 years later. He, and then he ran to the plant, sat in the cafeteria with the other workers. And 15 minutes later, the supervisor came, came staggering in saying, he hit me, he hit me, he's assaulted me, he hit me with a hammer. It wasn't a hammer, it was his fist. And they called the police and he was arrested. He didn't want to take a plea. So it was my first trial ever, criminal, civil, whatever. My first trial, my only criminal trial ever. And he was acquitted because the supervisor was just horrendously a liar. Right? And I learned how to cross-examine. I actually, I got forced to trial before I was ready. And I called, I was very good friends with, before he was famous with Barry Sheck. Uh, and I would call Barry like, like once an hour and say, Barry, what do I do next? I had no idea how to pick a jury. So I got, the, he got acquitted. I thought a couple of times the judge was going to throttle me. And then he had a face discharge at work. And there he had an arbitration with the union lawyer and he lost, he lost his arbitration. So he won the criminal trial, but he lost his arbitration. And it was always a part of me that felt like he would have 
preferred to have spent a few months in prison to be able to go back to a job that had health insurance and a pension and more than that minimum hourly wage. It's an interesting question. And I always repeated that until I saw the experience of people in prison. Yes, also- and then I stopped being sure that, boy, it's too, it's too uh, difficult. It's not so easy to say people would rather be in prison <clears throat> than lose their job. Well, not uh, just that, Arthur, uh, you know, you have to think about what a conviction means on your record um, and that it's essentially legalized discrimination from housing, employment, um, financial aid, government subsidies. Um, being arrested cuts you out from a lot of those opportunities, but being convicted um, is even more problematic. And then compounding that problem is how much time you spend in prison and then um, uh, its impact on where you are when you get out. So anyway, let's, let's talk about your campaign. So you wanna be district attorney. You, you spent, after the, your few criminal stuff, you started doing civil rights work, right? And you started doing affirmative litigation around police brutality. Yes. About other issues. Employment discrimination, sexual harassment, um, and then also on, on the youth side, defending children in suspension hearings. So what drove you to be, to decide to run for district attorney? I mean, this is, this is what, the, the impact a district attorney has, just the decision goes well beyond the four corners of that office and it comes into our homes and dictates our entire life for generations to come. It's, it's not one that should be taken lightly. And in jumping into the Manhattan district attorney's race, you know, there are a lot of folks that were in there, great people, but they're not from the impacted community and have not experienced the, the brunt of what these decisions mean for our families. And so I still felt like there was an otherization of this community. They weren't being seen as human beings and we're not understanding the gravity uh, of charging and prosecuting somebody. At the same time, we know there's a two-tiered system, right? We know that people of color have been made to be the face of crime in this city, while the powerful and privileged enjoy an entirely different measure uh, of accountability. And so for me, what I've always focused on in my policies and platform is actually addressing the root causes of crimes, making sure that we're focused on in investing resources into our families, not knocking them when they're down or getting the, the low hanging fruit because they're struggling, but infuse those instabilities with resources. And then holding police accountable. I mean, police presence in communities of color is very problematic. There is no trust. And it's because there are just so many protections for law enforcement. And this, and, and law enforcement is our introduction to the prosecution system. And so we have to dissect that relationship and make sure our rights are protected and that we put no badge or bank account above the law. And on the reverse side of that is, you know, we have to make sure we're focused on white collar crimes. Um, we don't imagine uh, someone who's called a criminal being a person in a suit, but there are crimes that have brought this country to its knees and destabilized our families. Um, and they need to be held accountable as well in a way that is restorative to our communities. Uh, and again, brings resources back into our communities. So in my run, I'm reimagining what this office does and what it means. And we have to make it a partner with our other city agencies to make our families stable, to ensure that we're focused on making sure people can be successful, that there are second chances, that they can change their ways in a meaningful way, not just prosecute, incarcerate, and then walk away. What for me feels like these knee-jerk reactions to circumstances that are happening, but probably could be avoided. What caused you, I want to understand what, I know Cyrus Vance, everyone figured he wasn't running, right? Or that he was vulnerable. And then you jumped into a race and there was 12, there were 12 people, I don't know, now that's down to about eight or nine or 10 people running for DA. What, why, why did you see this as your year to do this? You know, when people say, if you want something done right, you got to do it yourself. 
Yes, I know that, I do it all the time. <laughs> that, that sums this up for me. You know, we need real unapologetic transformational change, not because it's cool and provocative, but because this is what our communities have been fighting for for a very long time. And this is our futures are at stake. The success of our families are at stake here. And so, you know, it's one thing to make these decisions from an ivory tower and to not be part of the community and be talking at the community. It's another to be in it among the people making these decisions together and not buckling to under pressure uh, and to the powers that want the status quo to remain. And so for me, because I am that free agent, I've always been amongst the people making these changes for a long time, navigating adversarial and power, powerful waters, and then making these changes happen. Um, that's what I want to see with the Manhattan District Attorney's Office. I don't want to tweak. We need to overhaul it. We have to just start addressing the root causes uh, of these racial disparities, the two-tiered system, and do something about it already. Well, how, how would you, I like that word reimagine. I use it in, with respect to the police department in my campaign, not defund the NYPD, but reimagine the NYPD. Because I think when you talk about defunding, you scare some people who say there's crime. <laughs> I, right. I, don't want them, I don't want them to go away. I need, we need police. Uh, so I use the word reimagine. You're using the word reimagine for the, the DA, even though some people would love to throw the DA's office in the garbage. A lot of people say, no, we need to we need to address crime. Right? We do need to address crime. How would you reimagine it? Well, look, one thing I always tell people is we have a completely bloated police budget right now. More than enough staff. Nobody's been cut. Same thing with the DA's office. Large budget, a lot of staff. None of those uh, have been cut and crime is still rising. All right. So to respond with more police and more of the same, more prosecution um, is negligent, right? We have to understand what's going on here. And what's going on here is the pandemic has exacerbated social inequities, whether it's mental illness, poverty, or substance use disorder, um, they're not being addressed. And we see a lot of that in the cases that the Post does articles on, right? Here's a person that's clearly suffering from mental illness, has been arrested 30, 40, one story I read 77 times, they don't address the mental illness. They don't address the poverty part. They don't address the housing instability part, right? What they address is here's, here's you know, something that we could have prevented. It turned into this misconduct. And now we're going to respond only to that misconduct, not to the underlying cause of it. Because really, that's the easy thing to do, right? The easy thing to do is that knee-jerk reaction where, okay, well, we have to prosecute and we have to incarcerate. I mean, this is crazy. This is unacceptable. Okay. And then you do that. And then that person is free at some point, right? A 30 days in jail, maybe a year in jail, that person is now back out into our communities. And what have we done to rehabilitate? What have we done to prevent recidivism? And maybe more so, mentally unstable. Exactly. And so what I when I say reimagine, I mean, let's get into a long term and deep relationship with these communities, with the people who come before this office and understand the root causes and really address it in ways that are going to protect the public while <laughs> also... Yeah, while also rehabilitating. Well, for one, partner with our community-based organizations. 98% of cases end in a plea for a reason. And instead of in-housing a lot of programs, treatments, uh, and rehabilitation in the DA's office, which is not a treatment center, we have community-based organizations that are in these impacted communities that can work day in and day out to address these issues and to rehabilitate people and ensure second chances. And right now it's conditional. If the DA's office feels like doing it, it'll do it. If it doesn't, it doesn't. And so instead of coming it from coming to it from a power play, we need to think about our real responsibility to the public uh, in a material way and working with our community-based organizations, alternative to incarceration programs, ensuring that there's some incentive to rehabilitate, right? If you're going to just put somebody in jail for five, seven years and say, no matter what you do, good or bad, you're in there. Nobody cares about you until you come out again. And then we have to remember you exist. But when people are in there and you can promote that rehabilitation, it allows for that sec successful reintegration. DA, and maybe it's somewhat mysterious, every once in a while we find out that the DA is sitting on a pile of money. <laughs> yes. Right? Uh, based on civil penalties that that even criminal cases, even just where you're incarcerated, but there's civil penalties, they sit on millions and millions of dollars. Is that part of the money that you would spend on, on doing these kind of programs? 
Yeah, if there's any left, uh, I know there's always 700 million in civil forfeiture asset money um, from a lot of these settlements. So we shall see what's left, but that and also shrinking our budget. You know, a lot of the things that the DA's office does is in-house. It doesn't have to be. Uh, And so that's what we also mean by shrinking the footprint is saying, you know, when it comes time to asking for our budget, instead of saying we need more, we can say things like, look, there's this program that has been successful with us, or it's part of our plan to prevent recidivism and to rehabilitate people. We need them as our partners. This money should probably go there uh, and support advocacy and funding for these other community-based organizations. And I think that's that's also how we can step this office up to be a partner with our other agencies to actually accomplish that stability. Into the day-to-day criminal stuff, the day-to-day stuff that your assistant DAs will handle, right? And there are how many hundred lawyers are in the DA's office? I think we're maybe three to four hundred. Majority of, of the staff there are support staff. Um, but the, the lawyers are three to four hundred. Uh, well, they're going to be still dealing with the arrests that the police make on the street for all kinds of crimes, you know, ranging from, you know, murder down to uh, petty theft. Um, how, how would you change that? How would you change their approach as their boss? So right now, the, the DA's office operates with a complaint room. It's called the Early Case Assessment Bureau. And all the paperwork that comes off the street is, is fed into this room. And the decision is made are we charging? What are we charging? What's going to be the end game for this case? Um, And it sounds easy, but that is where everything goes down, right? Information from law enforcement, the discovery process, um, the allegations, the drafting of the complaint. And so what we've proposed is scrapping that unit and instead starting with an arrest review unit, where we're going to analyze exactly how an officer came into contact with the civilian and all the circumstances regarding that engagement. And then documenting that data and making it publicly available so we can identify any abusive patterns and practices and then advocate for those changes. Looking at an officer's background, um, have they engaged in excessive force before? Do they have any disciplinary uh, issues? They have issues with their integrity. Um, Who is the person being stopped or being accused at this point? What are their backgrounds? What are their racial makeup? And then the next step is, what is the benefit here? Like when we, when we respond to this allegation, what is the point? Are we just want to punish? Do we want to show, are we focused on rehabilitation? Are we going to address the root causes here? Is this something that our office can make a difference in? Is there a partner that we can work with to ensure that whatever cry for help is coming through this case, that we are addressing it in a meaningful way. And just that change in mindset to go from how are we going to make this stick? How are we going to come up with a charge versus is this appropriate place here? Is this an appropriate place for these allegations to be? Is there something better out there that will actually focus on, one, is this a case that needs to be dismissed, thrown out, not even charged, right? Do we decline to prosecute here? Uh, Do we call out bad policing? Is there prosecutorial misconduct? Because that's also a huge part of it, right? Um, And then this is where the racial disparities play out as well. So all of this information, all of these things that we're fighting to change, a lot of it goes down in the arrest review unit, what I'm calling the arrest review unit. And not so so basically not where we're in a situation like now where all the DAs are re, are reassessing convictions, right? And throwing right. out hundreds of convictions later because of either police misconduct, lack of evidence, prosecutorial misconduct, uh, violation of procedural rights or whatever it is that people had. How would you, do you see, you, you know, a lot of these people that work are, they're, I'll call them career. Some people are career DAs um, right. or they do it for a number of years and then they go and become defense attorneys. Would you have to, do you see yourself doing a, a massive retraining? Do you think that, the, that they're actually, that that mindset is, exists if you just tell people to, to institute that mindset among the existing staff? I mean, you're not gonna mass fire 200 lawyers, right? How would you accomplish this? I think that we will need to identify uh, people that would frustrate our objective and we would have to terminate them and we have to be prepared for that. Like you said, there are people who are career prosecutors. The the incumbent has been there for 10 years. Morgenthau was there for over 30 years. People are ingrained in a tough on crime mentality that is reactionary. 
Um, and what we're trying to do here is something completely different. Um, and we're not just talking about mercy, second chances and rehabilitation. We're talking about defining your role outside of pushing that button to charge and prosecute, but to say, hey, we are obligated on a deeper level to understand what are the reverberating impacts and effects of our decision here and weigh those risks. And so we have to identify, and we are identifying people that would serve on our transition team that can replace uh, some of these uh, problematic ADAs that are there now on the executive level and on line ADAs and things of that sort and support staff, right? Because, you know, you look at Larry Krasner, Chase Boudin, D.A. Rollins, Kim Fox, even George Gascon, and the opposition is very real. And you have to have stability in that office. And, and yeah, I'm absolutely comfortable with being uncomfortable. That's the whole point of change. That's the whole point of rocking the boat. You want to get something different done. And so you need to have your allies in there as well with you. You know, one of the, I, I'm in a race, I'm running for city council. And I like to think of myself as one of the two principal candidates. I'm in a six person race, which is actually by city council standards is small. There are some districts where there's 12, 13, 14 people running. Yes. And my, my main opponent is somebody who has been inside. His main qualification is I was chief of staff to the existing city council person. And then before that, I worked for the prior city council person and I worked for Governor Cuomo. I've been in government and I understand government. You know, I know how it works. And I've heard a lot of stories about his inside work, but he basically uses that. And you're running against a number of people, some of whom are former prosecutors, some of whom are presently legal aid public defenders who basically say, but the former prosecutors in particular, I think say you need to have somebody in there who's been in the system, who understands how it works from day one. Why do you think that you as an outsider would be a more powerful district attorney? Because you don't need to be in the business of destabilizing uh, families and communities to know how the system works and what needs to change. The district attorney is going to set policy. So it's very important to understand the perspective that uh, a district attorney comes from, look at the track record and see how, uh, what cases they've gotten involved with, what were the turnouts and, and what was the impact in the communities. You know, for me, uh, I know all the systems very well. More importantly, I know where the loopholes are. As a civil rights attorney, that's my job, is to identify these abusive policies and practices that give rise to the racial disparities. All of the former prosecutors who are running um, were, were part of the problem of how we got here, right? And so there are moments, I'm sure, in their careers where they could have taken a stance and done things different. Um, but for me and all my experience of dealing with prosecutors, uh, I don't think they were ever encouraged to do things different or to break with the status quo or think outside the box. And so when you take people who have done the same thing over and over 5, 10, 15, 20 years, but have no ties with the community, uh, have never gone outside that office and been accountable or responsible for their decisions, how can we then expect them to do the right thing and make those transformational changes overnight? Um, I think it's all order. New York City has rarely had a woman, forget about a right. woman of color <laughs> as a district attorney. Um, right. I think the only one I could think of, I don't study the subject, but Elizabeth Holtzman, I think was the DA in Brooklyn for a while before she was the city controller. And she was a congressman and then she was and then she was DA in Brooklyn and then she was controller. How different would it be to for a woman to be running that department? What do you, when, why do you think that's important? I'm of sure course, you think it's think, important, right? Yeah, I think it's absolutely important. Uh, it's also important to have somebody that has walked in the shoes of those impacted by this office. You know, this is the mindset that we're trying to bring in, the, the difference that it all makes that someone is... Uh, willing to come into a place that has just done the same thing over and over and bring in that particular perspective. You know, being a woman is important, but you still run the risks of maintaining the status quo. I think what really sets me apart is that I've done it. I've been knee deep in the trenches to understand the impact of, uh, of a decision on your civil rights, on your family, to see your family struggle, to understand the instability that you're creating that's gonna come back to haunt us in the future. And then to work holistically and deeply and in partnership and co-governance with so many different community leaders and agencies 
to make these changes. I think that is the experience that has always been missing. Usually people do exactly what you said, right? Hey, I've been a prosecutor for a decade. I've been X for a decade or, or for 20 years. And so I'm automatically qualified. But for this particular position, the DA is setting policy. So we need to know what they're thinking, what have they done, and why can we trust that they're not going to sell us out when they get there? Now, um, parole. A lot of people get out of prison. They may even get out in less in one third of the time, right? To get a sentence of one to three, they get out in one, or they get out even less than than the one, right? Because they get the good time, but mm-hmm. then they're on parole for the rest of the, their sentence. And the experience that I can see with parole is people are abandoned. The parole officers are rarely available. The person isn't allowed to find a place to live without approval of a parole officer who then has then can take three or four or five weeks to get back to them when an apartment is available when it's lost. Or they, they can't take a job without approval of the parole officer because half the people I'm learning, most people don't know this, half the people in the state prisons are in on violating parole. Yep. So, and part of the part of what I can see is happening is they can't get to their parole officer. They can't contact their parole officer. And the parole officers, I don't know if they're, whether they don't care or they're just grace, grossly understaffed. The, the DA, it's not clear who has control over the parole system, mm-hmm. but it's part of the sentencing system. Right. What, what would you do? Do you have you thought about what, what would a DA do in terms of parole? And what role can a DA play in terms of parole? You know, the I've signed on to the Less is More Act, which is trying to bridge the gap of technical parole violations, which is what Khalif Browder suffered from. And I'm and I'm honored to have his family's endorsement. You know, for me, my focus is not on in moving away from keeping people tied to the system in some function. And with parole, if we're going to actually ensure that rehabilitation and success, we have to support it. A lot of times the parole conditions serve to destabilize, just frustrate that effort, whether it's not checking in with your parole officer, not updating your address, not being gainfully employed, things that can really trip people up, but have dire circumstances where they're not new crimes, right? So you're not eligible for bail, but you can be uh, and are typically incarcerated, and then you wait for your hearing. And you have no choice but to sit and wait for your hearing. And, and that's what happened to Khalif Browder. So we have to also be careful with how we use parole. It shouldn't be in addition to incarceration. I think that if a person has served their time, then we should, that's it. They serve their time. If somebody needs the intentions of what parole would serve, then we should set them up with a community-based organization that is going to ensure that, that successful integration. I feel the same way for probation as well. Tell me what, what you think your biggest success was as a, uh, the case that was your biggest success as a civil rights lawyer. Okay, well, just one, I think, was uh, when we protected the religious civil rights of New Yorkers during post-arrest processing. Um, that was a hard-fought case with the NYPD to change the parole guide. There were Muslim women who, during their arrest, were forced to remove their hijab. And there was a lot of ignorance that came with that discrimination, mocking them as they removed their hijab, abusing their rights, abusing uh, their beliefs, um, just making an entire mockery out of the whole ordeal. Um, And it really broke them down. And it started with a high school student. um, And she was extremely embarrassed and distraught over the, the whole encounter. And so when we first brought that lawsuit, everybody was like, oh, it's not a big deal. This is not going to go anywhere. Even our courts were very much like, oh, well, how many people does this really impact? Is this really a big deal? And then it got to the point where we had like a couple of big civil rights firms uh, jump in with us on it. Uh, in our first round, I did it solo, changed the policy. NYPD came back, continued to engage in that abusive practice, removing their religious gear, photographing them, and then having that information out there. And then we just uh, settled a, a big class action across the board where we now actually changed that policy and created a court monitoring system to ensure that the law enforcement doesn't get out of line or the prosecutor's office when it comes time to the religious liberties of all of New Yorkers. The last thing I want to ask is about your campaign. The first part is, you know, endorsements, and which I think yeah. matter and don't matter, right? I mean, I, I think endorsements are 
one thing, but getting your word out there is another. Uh, some people can parade lists of long endorsements. I remember I, I ran for state democratic committee once against an incumbent and every Congress person, assembly person, senator, city council person endorsed my opponent. That was what his literature had. It had a whole list of names. And me, I had like Fernando Ferrer who had run for mayor in 2001 and I won, right? I got out my word, I won the race. You've been, you've been endorsed, I heard the other day by the Working Families Party. Yes. What other endorsements have you gotten? So uh, in addition to the Working Families Party, we have Cynthia Nixon, public advocate, Jamani Williams, uh, Assemblywoman Yulene New. Um, I'm most proud to have the endorsement of seven NYCHA resident council presidents, Coda from the Lower East Side, Akeem Browder, Khalif Browder's brother, Asal, the Asian American Labor Union, um, and I'm sure I'm missing others, but okay. um, so Congresswoman Rashida to leave. Your campaign strategy, how are you going to win? Um, we're winning by putting in the work. I mean, we've we've um, we started our field game very early, even though it kicked off last week. We've made um, over two hundred thousand contacts, uh, positive voter IDs with people in Manhattan. We've made over fifteen thousand phone calls. I've been out petitioning in between my call time uh, and the forums and the meetings. So we're going to outwork people. I mean, yes, there are a lot of people who are independently wealthy in this race and have the access of. Uh, and the support of the what we call the establishment candidates. And so they're going to have that access. I'm not somebody that has ever had that access, but I've always worked for everything I have. And, and that's the way we're going to earn this, this uh, win too. We're going to outwork everybody. And as we close off, how does someone want to get in touch with your campaign? How do they do that? They can visit us at uh, Tahani4DA.com or at any of my social media handles, Tahani NYC, uh, and pitch in. Come throw down with us. It's really fun. Yesterday, we were in the Lower East Side for a couple hours doing petitioning. We have a really vibrant volunteer group on our Slack, too. Um, so join us. We have a place for everybody. It's going to be a historic one. I'm going to close this out. Uh, we've been talking to Tahani Abushi, who is running for Manhattan District Attorney. The primary is June 22nd, June 22nd. It's only three and a half months away. It's gonna be a long three and a half months, right? I support Tahani, I wanna say that. So I didn't say it up in the beginning of the show. As a civil rights lawyer myself, I identify with, with, with what, what she's doing and uh, I hope we're gonna be able to get to work together, whether, it's, whether I'm a city council person or just another civil rights lawyer who you know, wants to change the system. So thank you for spending your time with us and we'll see you out in the field. Thank you so much, Arthur. I really appreciate that. And I, and I wish you good luck as you're changing things up too.